You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are joining us from, welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. My name is Natalie. I am the Skylight Books Assistant Events Manager, and we are so excited that you could join us for this event this evening featuring Desgraciado by Angel Dominguez, and they will be in conversation with Seshu Foster. Angel Dominguez is a Latinx poet and artist of Yucatec Maya descent, born in Hollywood and raised in Van Nuys, California by their immigrant family. They now live amongst the Santa Cruz Mountains in Bonnie Dune, California, they are the author of Desgraciado, The Collected Letters, Rosenwater, and Black Lavender Milk. Angel earned a BA from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and an MFA from the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. You can find Angel's work online and in print in various publications, and you can find Angel in the Redwoods or the Ocean. Seshu Foster taught composition and literature in East LA for 35 years. His most recent books are City of the Future, winner of the CLMP Firecracker Award, and Eladot, A History of the East Los Angeles Dirigible Air Transport Lines, a novel co-written with artist Arturo E. Romo. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for having us. And Angel, do you want to start us off by reading a little bit? Yeah, and um, I'm going to do something very different, y'all, which um, if you've seen me do my thing before, you know, I am not always planning where I'm going, but tonight I'm going to be reading some letters that were selected um, by El, El Gran Maestro himself, Seshu Foster. Um, so I'm excited to read these. Uh, very excited. I've even bookmarked them and everything. So thank you all so much for being here. <sighs> Dear Diego, can I tell you something? I've never been good at Spanish. All my friends expect this tongue from me. They say, lick it. Lick the space of language between us. Sometimes I expect it too. And then I get there and I remember how I never learned Spanish, at least not formally, in a school. And it makes me crazy. I should know more than I know, shouldn't I? And then there's all this guilt, the body I've buried beside myself, inside myself. It wretches for hours. I can't even keep water down. This body vomits the sun. Diego, there is too much to tell you. How do I start? How did you start? What was that even? To infect a foreign land body with such confidence. You've got the word of God that thistle-lisping tongue that sounds wrong to me, like it robbed our land, our bodies blind of themselves. Now I can't tell what I am. Cog, dog, prey, poem, bastard, bitch. My blood blooms hot tracks of earth that shatter when I think of becoming, or what I have become. I think of you more than I'd like to admit. I work out a poem, or rather, I've been planning on a poem. Called, I've been planning on writing a poem called I See My Biological Father Several Times a Day. Sometimes I really think I'll write the poem, just like I think I'll write this book, just like I think I might find him. Sometimes I think it's you. I imagine your absent image, sunlight circle denoting a sense of holy or hashtag blessed. Diego, I think we have to dance. I need you in my bed to understand you. I house you in my body. I lick the language between us, spit up blood. My mouth tastes like pennies in a desert. Your heart tastes like a mouthful of cocaine. I can't swallow. I vomit bombs over Dresden. I vomit lost notebooks into the archives of my oppressor. I unwrite your book, Diego. You lie down on a bed of flowers and I'll drag your body across Sunset Boulevard from Figueroa to the beach. Obliteration and bliss are synonymous. If I threw you into the fire, would you burn? Auto de fe, act of faith, a fire, a fire, a fire between us. Love, dog. 
Dear Diego, all our undulations become lines. I used to think in wavelength, but solidified in favor of semantic articulations, in appreciation of the warm and buoyant void. I misplaced you somewhere inside of my system. I can taste your sweat when I cough into the skin of my elbow. I can taste your tongue lingering on my every word in Spanish. I hoist you up into my spinal column until you've infected all of me. Call me patient zero for colonial dystrophy, accessing the genome of oppression across 40 screens to see the entirety of the human blueprint parsed out into columns and letters and colors. We look like angles trapped in a white grid when we look at ourselves in this way. There is so much space between you and I, Diego. Despite the distance, you and I are alleles of one another. I X out your Y, always softening the inherited violence of machismo with a queer heart. Always yours, A. Dear Diego, did I ever tell you that I, too, live betwixt two streams when it rains? I smile at the small similarities in a bashful shame of having written you all these love letters for all these years. What are we to one another? Would you care if you knew I was writing to you all these years later? 455 years is a long time, Diego. Long enough to see the oppressor's empire fall and rebuild and fall and become other empires that fall. Long enough to see every one of those so-called explorers dead. What am I become to myself? Who am I all these years later? Tato's mother calls it colonial sickness, the latent radiation poisoning of colonization. I call it colonial atrophy. I can almost feel the atoms falling off of me, 5,000 at a time, cells regenerating every seven years while their atoms phase in and out of existence. Between realities is where I write to keep you. Live from the mystery itself, writing love letters to keep myself alive. And those are the letters we've got. And now I think we're in conversation. Okay. Um, do we, if this was a live reading, would you have introduced Diego de Landa before you began? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I guess I probably should have uh, invited Diego into the space, right? And so I'll, I'll say it now. Um, Diego de Landa was a Spanish friar who on July 12, 1562, gathered all of the religious idols and texts that he could find to burn on a platform that was built over a sacred site in Mani, Yucatan. This was his attempt to eradicate the Yucatec Maya language. Um, he failed, of course, right? It's oral traditions, the language survived, um, outlived the crown of Spain, frankly. Um, and Diego was put on trial uh, by Bishop Doral, um, because he was just a friar, right? He was just a friar using Spanish inquisitional torture tactics. And Bishop Toral was like, hey, buddy, I don't think you filed the right paperwork for this. So off Diego went back to Spain, stands trial. The crown of Spain is like, hey, you committed these atrocities against the indigenous, but you didn't get our permission. So that's what we're mostly angry about. Um, that's why you're here. And over the course of this trial, which he won, uh, Bishop Toral died. <laughs> and so Delanda was sent back to the Yucatan Peninsula with a shiny new promotion and became Bishop of the Yucatan. Um, and then, you know, it's described uh, in many places that he felt a great sorrow. Ugh! He felt such sorrow for what he had done, um, so much so that he wrote out this document, um, which was actually lost to history. It's called Relación de Cosas Pasado en el Yucatan. 
the only surviving copy was an incomplete facsimile that was found in a Madrid library by a French Atlantean scholar um, who translated it and it went on to become like a very foundational text for pre-Spanish uh, Yucatec Maya culture. Um, or as anthropologists love to refer to the Yucatan, uh, Yucatec Maya, the lowland classical Maya. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's Diego, and so I, I wrote him a I wrote him a bunch of love letters for seven years. Um, um, okay, maybe this is a good good place to mention that. So this is obviously it's it's a book of letters, a book of collected letters, an epistolary book. Um, and what, one of the things that impressed me, um, as I waded into the book was how that, uh, form and format becomes a figure, a poetic figure in itself, where you keep addressing, you keep addressing, um, uh, silence, uh, and the reiteration of, addresses to someone who cannot answer or a ghost who refuses to answer or that um, that colonized part of ourselves that um, that doesn't recognize its own colonization also cannot answer. And so these various kinds of silences are evoked by the reiteration of, of direct address, second person direct address in, in these letters really, uh, really wonderfully. Um, and well, how did you, how did you feel about that? You, <laughs> you, um, you mentioned that you lost an original notebook that, that was part of the, the, um, the, the drafting of the, of the manuscript. Yes. Yes, I, I absolutely did. And I also love what you're saying about addressing silence um, and addressing absence, right? And in so many ways, these letters were addressing an absence of a voice in history, right? History is written by the, the conquerors, the colonizers. Um, and that's why, you know, I went to the Cortez Middle School um, off Sepulveda Boulevard, right? Like that, that's why I, I grew up watching these National Geographic documentaries um, that told me the Maya people had disappeared. And then I would go home to my grandparents and I'd be like, hey, they said we don't exist. I, I'm so confused. And they're like, oh, don't, it's just colonizers, you know? Um, and also writing to someone who refuses to answer, right? Spain um, has refused to apologize for the genocidal atrocities that they committed against the Americas, right? That, I mean, it's a literal refusal. It continues to this day. Um, and, uh, and you're absolutely right about losing that notebook. Um, I, I think I write about it in one of these letters here. I gave myself a somatic ritual, um, you know, after C.A. Conrad of walking through the desert of my youth, which really just meant walking from the house I grew up in to the North Hollywood Red Line station, um, <laughs> with my notebook and capturing what language arose, what, what emerged. Always listening, right? Just always listening for it, whether it be a passerby, someone on a bike, a snippet of a song. What was it that was going to speak to me as I walked these seven miles of Van Nuys? Um, and, I, and I made it to the North Hollywood, you know, Red Line Station portal, uh, that multicolored thing. And I sat down and I started writing and my friend got there um, and, and we left to go get some tacos. And no sooner did I put a taco in my mouth that I realized I left the notebook there. And I insisted we drive back. So we drove back, it was gone. Um, and, uh, and it feels fitting, right? It feels fitting that there are like these missing pieces um, sort of in response to Diego's own missing piece book, right? It was an incomplete project. Um, and I actually, uh, this is just our little secret for Skylight. Uh, I found a bunch of letters after the book had gone to print. I like found letters that should have gone into the book. Um, and it just kind of felt like one of Diego's tricks. I was just like very sneaky. Okay, ha ha ha. The collected letters is actually missing like 15 um, or more. Uh, and, and those are in handwritten in notebooks. Um, you know, I, I actually learned uh, from 
a very wise poet wants to always have a notebook with you, have multiple notebooks. Um, and as a result, I forgot to check the other notebooks. Um, it's fine. You know, we'll find something to do with them someday. <laughs> um, okay. Love streams through this book. Um, I mean, that was, that was another thing that, that gets reiterated. Um, a love that, that consists of both defiance and rage. Mm -hmm. um, for not just for historical reasons, but for personal reasons, and not just for um, um, what? Not just for abstract reasons, but for for intense, like personal shame. Um, and it's and it's sort of alluded to in in the pieces that you that you um, read. Yeah, love in this book was kind of the most difficult thing to come to, right? Um, this book started way back in June 2014. Um, I was taking a workshop with Fareed Matuk and Susan Briante, and the prompt was uh, write a love letter to your worst enemy. And so that first letter that emerges in the book, Diego, you dead man, it's been centuries, I'm sure, since someone called out to you. Now I do, Diego de Landa. I, you know, and, and I didn't know I had that much memorized. Um, but uh, that letter was largely left unchanged. And there's a lot of rage in that first letter. But it breaks down. And in the letter itself, as I was writing it, I had this moment where I was like, do I want to destroy you? Will de is destroying you even possible? Or do I want to save you? Um, and, and I write that in, in the actual book. And um, but that's also related to the the language that you're using, you're using the language of conquerors, you're mm -hmm. using either English or Spanish, both of which are the language of, of the conquerors. And, right. and so that, I, I mean, you, you mentioned unwriting uh, in one of the pieces that you read. And I mean, that, that's another aspect of the book that really struck me in. As, as really profound, as really wonderful, that you take language to a place of unwriting. You take language to a place that feels like it goes beyond silence um, to, um, to kind of describe a silence, to unwrite the, the language and the history that's been written and to address absence. Yeah, and so much of this writing was also, you know, produced um, in, in like, surviving the quotidian, right, in not working an academic job. Um, and, and actually, my favorite thing to do when I, like, visit classes or get to talk to anyone about the book is um, I show them quite literally that I wrote parts of this book on my phone, like, in between jobs, on the bus, going from Longmont to Denver to you know, go from working an office job to catering for a Denver Broncos game. It was a very weird time in my life. Um, and, and so, so much of this writing is like writing that's based in survival and where does survival come from, but a place of love. And in working through this for so long, there was this realization of like thinking back to when I was a child and I would get so mad that I would start to cry. And I kept trying to figure that out. I kept trying to figure out what led to me crying from being so angry. And it was ultimately a matter of love, of wanting to be understood or wanting to understand, right? To, to understand the, the person or the event or the thing that had upset me so much. Um, and so in writing to Diego for seven years, like, I mean, I'll be honest with you, at one point, I thought I had completely, like, fucked my brain up. I was like, oh, man, I don't know how to write a poem anymore. How the hell do you break a line? Like, I'm over here in sentence, like, I'm just typing away, you know, or, like, scribbling these sentences down. Um, and, and so that, you know, in a lot of ways, that's why I say this is, like, this is writing of survival, right? Um, like, this, when, this was writing to live. When Farid or Susan... Uh, broached this 
proposal to you, how did how did you come up with Diego? How did oh, Diego come to you? It was immediate. It was immediate. It was um, it. So uh, I'm pretty sure it, it was Fareed who said it. Um, but as soon as that prompt came, a love letter to your worst enemy. I could not think of a worse enemy. There was no one that I wanted revenge from more than that individual. Um, you know, especially because Diego looms so large in Yucatec Maya history um, and the history of the peninsula itself. And like my family from the Yucatan, you know, uh, are aware of Diego. Like it's, um, it couldn't have been anyone else. There was no one else that I could have written to in this way. Um, and it turned out from writing to Diego, I also started to learn all these weird things, all these similarities, right? He lives betwixt uh, two streams. I live betwixt two streams. We both left home at 17. Um, he's a Scorpio. I'm a Scorpio. He's asthmatic. I'm asthmatic. It was so weird to me because then I was just like, do I know you somehow? Right? And I say it in that poem of like, I, uh, I, I'm working on writing this poem called I See My Biological Father Several Times a Day. Um, and sometimes I think he'll look like you, Diego. Right, and that's also an acknowledgement of this inextricability of the colonized body, right? Colonization exists in me. This mark of the Spanish is literally on my face. Um, and, and, it's, and yet it's silent, right? I'm not white passing. Um, and so I don't benefit from colonization. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was interesting to work it out. Yeah. Can we, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Um, because uh, I met you at, at uh, UC Santa Cruz. Um, and I remember something that you said to me where you were talking about, well, maybe that was at the reading that you and I both gave at UC Santa Cruz. And you were talking about how your parents or your family or people in your family were, were confused or dismayed by the fact that you were putting all this work and time into higher education and you were, you were pulling down these higher degrees and, and yet, you know, you weren't, uh, you weren't driving in a new Lexus or whatever. And, um, <laughs> and that seems like a real uh, immigrant child dilemma, like the, the dilemma of the colonized child that it, um, yeah, do, do I become my family's retirement plan? Do I make good on my promises as a fifth grader graduating saying that I will be a computer analyst or a computer engineer? Um, I said one of those things on my fifth grade graduation because my goal was I was gonna buy my family houses. In Los Angeles, no less, right? Like I was gonna buy everyone a house. That was the thing and then, you know, in, in working through writing and realizing that writing was this driving motivation to, you know, this, this body of flesh and spirit. Um, it was hard to explain that. It was that, like, I remember when I got, um, you know, into my MFA program and I was so excited and I told my family and they're like, I thought you just finished college. What do you mean you're going to college again? Didn't you just get a degree? Yeah. Oh, you're going to get a degree. So yeah. you're going to be like a rich professor. It's like, oh, no, see, creative writing isn't really that. Um, and, it, and you know, it, it's, it's been a struggle to, to get to a place where it's like, how do I maintain, um, you know, a quality of life in which I'm not paycheck to paycheck or, you know, uh, playing with overdraft math um, and, and still maintain uh, this calling, right? Right. This 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 need. It's it's not that I want to write. It's like I I have to write. Right. Like that struggle is mentioned and referred to in the book. In in numerous letters in the book, you refer to um, unpaid bills and the demands of working full time and um, and just thinking in that that colonized way of having to make ends meet all the time or or get another degree so you can make more money and have a more stable life and continually kind of 
gentrifying yourself in order to fit in. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And advice to those immigrant kids who are right now going through all those things. And well, I guess like there's this psychic toll that it takes on you. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I am alive entirely out of spite. I I thrive off of revenge. I am a stubborn person. Like I I refuse. And and that's my honest to god answer is the way that I've been able to work on these things, write these books. Um, you know, is I I simply refuse to I don't want anything to be taken from me. And I've like worked hard to be able to work with words and think about language and like write these things down and no one's gonna take that away from me. So if it's a full-time job, you know, or, or multiple jobs, I will find a way to write. Um, and I think that, that that's really what it is when you're an artist or you're a writer. It's like, you know, and I say this to any, um, you know, immigrant kids or, or anyone who's like feeling that call, pick up the phone. Pick up the phone, right? If you're getting the call to do this, to write, to make, to create, to document, to remember, do it. Do it. Do it by any means possible. And give yourself permission to write. Write in your phone. Write on a post-it note, a receipt, whatever you have near you. Don't put limitations on it. You don't need to be in a cabin in the woods. I say this as I am you know, coming to you live from a cabin in the woods, essentially. Um, but. Uh... So there are, there are um, a couple moving allusions to both of your grandparents, grandfathers uh, in this book. And I know in your previous book, um, there was, it, there, there are moving tributes to your grandmother. Yes. Um, so how does, how does that, how do, how do they, play a role in your in your work because mm -hmm. in a way you're breaching that gap between between them yeah you know my first book black lavender milk um which was published back in 2015 by timeless infinite light was um it was dedicated to my grandfather shish shishan um better known as jose asuncion dominguez um and you know he's buried in the um Oh wow, I, I know how to get there. Um <laughs> it's it's off of the five. I'm forgetting it now. Forest lawn. Um and and you know, Sheesh was one of the most important people to me, and he was someone who maintained a weaving of light that was our family. And he was this peacekeeper. He was this figure that loomed large in my life. And he always encouraged me to pursue writing, to keep at it, to do the thing. Um, you know, many years ago, I wanted to be a, an actor, right? And um, one of the last things he said to me before he passed was like, I, I like that you do theater, keep doing it. Um, and, and so Black Lavender Milk was a book uh, that was about atonement. Like I was working that grief out for over a decade um, and I'm still working through it in some days, right? Grief is a finicky ocean, it's so hard. Um, and my second book, uh, which came out last year, through the operating system. Um, shout out the operating system. Shout out uh, Eli Moss, a really incredible and compassionate editor for that project. Um, that was a book that is dedicated to my grandmother and it's a book that's largely dedicated to my entire family. Um, and that book was one of the hardest things I've ever had to write, right? Like that, that book changed so much and that book actually opens with a poem from my grandmother. There's a handwritten poem that's there um, and then it's typed out afterwards. And that, that, book, that too is so wonderful. Yeah. And, and so my grandmother is still with us. Um, you know, Mama is still with us. She's here. Um, I think she's staying in Northridge right now. Um, but, you know, as we're experiencing gentrification firsthand, which I've got to tell you, coming from Van Nuys, I was just like, you guys want to gentrify Satakoy? Like, what is wrong with you people? Like, just leave us be, man. Um, you know, and I knew it was all going downhill once the Chupa Precios, which was this Mex Mexican market that had been there longer than I'd been alive, 
once that shut down, I was like, oh, it's over. It's done. I got to We got to we got to figure this out, everybody. Um, but, you know, in, in talking with my grandmother, um, that that book came out in that way. It was supposed to be a whole other book. It was going to be this travel log about returning to the Yucatan Peninsula, which in my first book I talk about, right, the flight that never happened. I never got to go back to my grandfather. Um, and I actually wound up getting to go back um, because I was working a unionized job. Pro-union, everyone unionized, get a union. Let's all do a general strike at some point in time. Um, anyway, uh, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that book was, it was going to be this whole other thing. And, and it changed in these conversations with my grandmother. It changed because gentrification was changing my life. It was taking the family house away, right? And I had to remember it. I couldn't lose it. I couldn't forget it. Um, and, and so that, that's in large part like what that book is. And I think there's an importance in, um, and this is something I learned from you. You gave, uh, you were in conversation a couple of years ago and I typed it and I wrote it in my notebook that you talked about the importance of documenting undocumented histories. And that is why, um, you know, in Rose Sun Water, there is a section that's called, and it's the first section, right? It's called A Cenote Blossoms in Van Nuys, California. Um, because like in so many ways, it's like linguistically Van Nuys gets gentrified by LA all the time. You meet someone from the Valley out in the world, they're like, oh, I'm from LA. And you go, what part? They're like, San Fernando Valley. And they say it in this way where I'm just like, no, 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 no. We're, we're taking that back. We're, it's the great one eight. It is, <laughs> that is our home, you know? Like I came from that. Tacos Mexico, 50 cent Taco Tuesdays, 75 cent Taco Thursdays, you know? Slurpees at the 7-Eleven. Um, you who's from the liquor store. Like that's my life. You can't take that from me. Um, sorry to get, I get so passionate about Van Nuys. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and so those take it back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, take back Van Nuys someday, someday. Um, and so those two books were like so important to me, you know, they're dedicated to my family and Desgraciado, this thing right here is the first book that it's like, I'll be honest with y'all, this one's all for me. I, I have never worked harder on anything in my life. I wrote this like it would be my first and my last. Um, I, yeah, I can't think of anything I've ever worked so hard on. And, and it's because I had to. I don't want, it's not that I wanted to, right? Like it's, I had to do this. Um, and that's also in part why the book is dedicated for all kin. Because it's for anyone who feels this resonance, right? These wavelengths moving around reality. Um, yeah, I'm looking for a quote about failing, um, which... Oh, there's a lot of those. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, oh, let's see. Um, So, for example, on, on um, what is it? Sorry. Um, oh, it's okay. I've got one for you on page right. 40. Today's the day, and I can't print you. That literally happened to me. It was a reading. I needed to print out pages of Desgraciado. I couldn't. I failed to print it out. Um, you know, later, I, I failed to say goodbye to my grandfather, Jose. Um, you know, who was off to Guadalajara. Um, he passed away a few years ago. Um, there is there is a lot of failure. I think, I mean, what's wrong with failure? Right? Beckett, what's Beckett say? Fit, fail better, fail more. Um it's because I mean failure is really just opportunity by another name. It's potential, it's the unexpected, um, it's the surprise. Right. I and think it, you know, for me, it it also resonates with your your taking language to a kind of limit that that you take it to a limit, and then beyond that, it fails. Mm. Um, and so, for example, on page thirty two, um, not only not only are you talking about language and taking it to a kind of to an edge of silence, but it's mostly bills I can't pay. It's just a sad paper cut. I keep reopening with blades of grass and wind. Um, and so 
in the body, you're connecting both language and the ghosts of history, as well as the day-to-day -day struggle. Um, and so my question is how, how do you sit with failure then? The, the, the failure of losing an entire notebook of work, um, the failure of, of not, uh, not saying goodbye to your grandfather who you, who you, who maybe expected you to come visit him later. Um, and then you weren't unable, um, things like that. You know, that, so I'll, I'll share a story with you. Um, when my grandfather passed away, I got a call from my estranged stepfather. Um, and I hadn't heard from him in years. And anyway, he let me know that uh, my grandfather was on his way out. And if I could make it to Lancaster, I should come now. So I hopped in the car and I booked it. I got to about King City and I got the call. He's gone. And the coroner will be here in two and a half hours. And that's the longest they can wait. And it just was not possible for me to go there. And... I sat in my car drinking a pumpkin spice latte um, and had this moment where I was like, I should cancel class this day. Because at the time I was working full time and I was also adjuncting at CSU Monterey Bay. And I was like, I should cancel class. How am I going to go to class? How am I going to go teach today? And we were teaching Tongo Eisen Martin's um, Heaven is All Goodbyes. And I was like, I, I don't know that I can do this. And... I had this moment and I always, and I don't know why I do this to myself. No one has ever made me do this to myself, but I do this to myself where I was like, you know what? I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And I believe poetry is healing. And I believe teaching is healing. And I believe that pedagogy is life-giving and all of these things. I'm going to see if that's true. And so I drove home. I, or no, 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 I drove, I drove to, I, I drove to the campus and I taught class. And it was one of the best classes that I've ever been a part of, like let alone taught. And, and that is my response to that. Like, what do you do with failure, right? What do you do with the lack? You write into it, you write towards it. And if you can't write, if you have no energy to write, you read something. Or you find something that resonates, right? Like a single line of poetry could save your life. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And every time I start to question it, I put it into practice immediately. I'm like, does this thing still work? You know, just like tapping on the notebook. Like, is this still on? <laughs> and I think that's the only way that, that we can work with and through. I think failure by another name might be like soft grief. Right, <laughs> right, because it's like we've got these hopes, and it doesn't pan out necessarily, and then we're left with kind of like the basis for survival, right? It's like, well, we're here. I used to mutter to myself like, and now we're here. Whenever I'd go through something intense, because I'd be like, I have nothing left to do, or if I had to wake up for a three a.m. catering shift, I would just wake up and be like, here we go. I don't have a say. I'm in motion. Got to do it. We've got to do so much. Um, and you're yeah. carrying your notebook and you're you're returning to it and you keep writing. And the, that kind of perseverance and and courage really is part of the love that that is a register in this book that is that is streaming through the book because you don't give up. You don't give up. You keep going. You keep bringing it. It. You know, it got hard. I'll, I'll be honest. Like, it got hard at some points. And at some points, I just, I felt hurt by Diego, right? I worked on this project for so long. I was like, why can't I get, why won't this dead person talk to me? That's how upset I got at one point. I was like, I've done so much for you. I've done all the, because the other thing was I did all this research for this book. Because I just, I, I just can't stand, um, like, knee-jerk reactionary individuals who, like, think that like a, a, a black or brown person being angry about things is just like a response. Oh, that, oh, that's just an angry, per you know, an angry brown person. 
Um, and so I completely refused that. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to read every single fucking book that has ever mentioned him. And you know what else? I'm going to make the Encyclopedia Britannica change their article. I actually wrote to them for six months straight. I wrote to them once because I just got so mad. I got so angry. And, 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 and they were forced to, to put you in the annotations. Yep. That I'm now an official editor um, because I wrote to them and I was like, this is unacceptable. You are, you're talking about this genocidal monster like he was a good man. And, and, I, and, I just, and I had the facts, right? Like I wasn't just like the descendant of those who survived the atrocity. I was like, look, here's the books. Here's the citation. Here's the other citation. Here's the primary source. Here's what's wrong with this primary source, you idiots. Uh, <laughs> um, rage will make you do crazy things, right? Like it, it is a, a never-ending well. <laughs> All right. So Nat's popped in, and and we do. It's popped in. Yes, we do have some questions here. Um, so we can go ahead and start with a question from Ivy. Angel, at what age were you when you knew that you needed to write when you answered that call? Was it a specific moment or did it start to slowly trickle in? I was in elementary school and I had a friend named Darren who invited me to co-write a story about two frog characters that we developed. I've never said this out loud to anyone, by the way. <laughs> Um, he invented a character named Flip Frog, and I invented a character named Froggy, which was loosely based on uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And and we wrote this story. We like wrote a story. It was like ten pages long, handwritten pencil. I think my mom still has it somewhere. Um, but you know, I I don't know that that was the first moment that I knew I needed to write. Um, but I will say that like writing his found its way of telling me that I need to be doing it throughout my life. Um, before meeting Seshu at UC Santa Cruz, I gave myself a project of writing one poem a day for a year. No one told me to do that. I was just like, I am going to do this to live. <laughs> and I did, I lived, right? I lived, I wrote a poem um, every day. Um, and the days that I didn't, I wrote extra poems. Um, and and I'll tell y'all the, the real truth of when I learned that I was a poet or accepted that I was a poet. Um, and this is in Roast on Water. There's an interview at the end of it, but I came to Seshu's office hours because I was just being a terrible student and my life was falling apart. Like, I'm not gonna get into it, but like I rattle off all these things that were happening in my life. Like I was just in crisis to Seshu. And, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I just, I know I'm better than this, but like, damn, like, what do you do when this is happening? And Seshu leaned back and was like, you know, those sound like poet problems. How about you don't come in today? We'll see you next week. You should do some writing. And it was like a bomb went off in my head. I was like, I'm what? You, this kid, this hood rat from Van Nuys is a poet? <laughs> Changed my life. Changed my life. I never stopped after that. Never stopped. But you had been going. You had I, been going before that too. So it true. wasn't like you know, I made you turn the corner or whatever. You solidified the guardrail. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I hope that answers the question. All right. And how has your writing process changed or not changed? through the past three books? Um, at one point in time, I had, while I was actually working on both Rose Sun Water and Desclaciado, I had to keep telling myself, it's okay to write radically different books. It's okay to write books that don't look like each other. It's okay to write books that don't speak to each other necessarily. Um, and I think my Black Lavender Milk book is very steeped um, in some like early 2010s uh, experimental writing theory, MFA language talk type of stuff, which, you know, is fine. It has its place. I still love that book. It's a beautiful book, but it's like not, it wasn't necessarily my voice yet. Um, and in writing Rose Sun Water, there was, um, 
there was this this movement towards a radical intimacy of moving away from the sort of like hazy, distant, like you know, po like flowery language, and there was this desire to document, to remember. But there was also this this desire to share with the reader the the real lowdown deal about what I actually think about writing and 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 its role and its purpose and making and also being alive like that. Rose Sun Water is like a secretly like I'm in a bit of a crisis um, in figuring out my life. It gets worked out, right? I'm I'm here. Um, but for Desgraciado, this was the one where I was like, okay, I'm taking the gloves off. I'm not shadow boxing anymore. This is the big fight, right? Like this is the thing. This is this is what I what I'm gonna do. Um, and so in that way, I'll actually share a secret with you all. The the cover image was made over a number of months. This is a, a collage that I made. Um, and so you'll see there is like a, a jaguar headed figure and an individual with uh, birds of paradise um, bursting from their heads. And, and there's all these people here, right? There's all these people, including, would you look at that, Seshu Foster right here. <laughs> I didn't get permission for that. So please <laughs> do not sue me, Seshu. I can't pay you. Um, but I thought a lot about what it meant to lose a fight in front of people you love. And so I am getting my ass kicked on the floor of the cosmos. And these are the people who, I'd, who I would want to see me go down swinging. And, and I don't know if that necessarily answers that question, but like, yes, my writing process has changed, right? Like this is, a, it, and listen to it, right? Listen to the project. I always tell everyone, everywhere I go, the writing knows better than we do. So listen to the writing. Follow it. These are great questions. <laughs> and people can keep sending them in if you got some more. We've got some more we're going through here. Uh, from Josiah. Angelica, what is, what is it like reading your poesia to your familia? Are there any plans to do a disgraciado tour of the Yucatan? Ooh. Shit, I should, huh? <laughs> um, you know, I've been very blessed to have my family be present at all of my in-person Los Angeles events. Um, so there was this CalArts reading that I did at downtown LA a few years ago, and my grandmother got to see it. Um, and, and I just always go a little extra hard when my family is like in the audience, because I'm just like, look, I can't buy y'all a house, but I'm gonna make you feel some things. Okay, like I've got feelings. Um, and I will say there was initially a plan to do a somatic exercise in Mani Yucatan on the platform on my last day uh, when I visited the Yucatan back in 2017. But that morning, it was my last morning in Merida. And I woke up and I thought, you know what's more important than going to read angry poetry on the platform where Diego burned, you know, attempted to destroy the, the Mayatan language? Going to see the house that my grandfather built in Merida and going to see his last living sister, Betty, my tia Betty. And so I did that instead. I almost missed my flight. I talked to Betty for so long. We had Pepsi in the morning because it's so hot in the Yucatan. No one really drinks coffee. Um, but we drank cups of Pepsi and we talked and we talked for hours. Um, yeah, I hope to someday go back. Maybe read poetry, maybe just talk. <laughs> And from Raul, Angel, can you talk a little bit about those rad, buzzy poems that look like echoes exploding? Ah, Where did they come yes. from? Are they heaven? Uh, yes, the portals. The portals. Yeah. Are they heaven? Do you hear that echo, Diego? I dreamt of a glass entryway. Diego, I was trying. I kept cutting myself every time I tried to pass through. Diego, Diego, do you hear that echo? The way we, do you hear that echo? The way we, yeah, yeah. What's going on here, right? Um, and for anyone wondering, yes, the word sky is intentionally cut off. That is, this is all on purpose, right? So um, in, in working uh, with my editor, uh, Andrea, uh, Andrea Abby Karam, who is an incredible poet, fellow Nightboat author, um, we were talking a lot about what it meant to see the shape of the book and what it meant for pacing and wavelength. 
and what is the shape of the energy of the book, which made me like I went nuts. There's photo documentation of this, but like a pickaxe went through the manuscript at one point, um, like literal pickaxe outside. And and it occurred to me that there is this thing happening in the letters, right? So me and Diego are kind of messing with the rules of time space and time travel, right? What is a cross-temporal dialogue, if not a type of time travel? Um, and so in working through all of these intense feelings and thoughts and things, um, it felt like the letters themselves started to have this like shaky nature to them, right? Like Schrodinger's cat, like this kind of quantum nature, right? Where it's many places at once, it's doing many things at once. Um, and uh, and so those two pages in particular, the portals, as I call them, um, are meant to be portals, right? The, the letter before says, who do we experience when we are by ourselves? Will I ever figure it out? And the portals are composed of, I am, I will, I am, I will, I, 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 you, 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 you. There are yous buried in there as well. Um, and there are these pyramidal structures as well, right? Um, and so is it heaven? I love that. I love that so much, Raul. I'm going to say yes. Or cenotes. Cenotes. Yeah. Actually, Sashi, you're absolutely right. They're cenotes, which are portals, right? The freshwater sinkholes of the Yucatan Peninsula um, are portals to Xibalba, right? Afterlife, where time moves differently. Raul, you're right. Seshu is always right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those those were my favorite poems to do and definitely some of the hardest to work on from like a design standpoint. So that was like a Zoom marathon um, with me and Kit Schluter, who um, designed the book. Uh, very grateful for Kit and and his kinship. Um, you know, Kit Kit really helped to to see the book, right? Um, and I was I was very grateful for that because it was also like a months and months long process of me just having an absolute panic attack all the time, and then sending him like forty different versions of the collage you see today. At a certain point, Kit was like, "Maybe we stop working on the collage." And he was right. You know, I had to let it go. <laughs> well, thank you both for such a beautiful, generous conversation. It was such a joy to listen to. And for all of our viewers and uh, everyone who joined us in this virtual portal, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Again, our guests this evening were Angel Dominguez and Sashu Foster. And we were celebrating the lovely collection Desgraciado. Thank, Thank you both so Thanks much. For your work. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.